Hi everyone, Teddy here to introduce my latest podcast. This one falls in the category of life more than leadership, and you'll soon hear why. Today you're going to hear a conversation with Sheila Alex, a friend and kindred spirit. One of the reasons I wanted to record a podcast with Sheila is that she was involved for many years with Osho, an Indian guru and teacher, also known as Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Although not my teacher, I became aware of Osho through various friends. He preached of meditation, love, and celebration very prominently during the 1970s and 80s. Recently, Netflix aired a documentary entitled Wild Wild Country, now Emmy-nominated, that told a different side to the story, one of politics, conflict, and internecine warfare all behind the scenes as his group of followers migrated from their ashram in Pune, India, to a remote piece of land in eastern Oregon. It was there that they created a thriving, self-contained city-state from scratch. They were anything but welcome by the handful of retirees who lived there, as well as the local and county governments they consistently fought with. Sheila, coincidentally given the same spiritual name as the documentary's protagonist, was four years in India and four years in Oregon. Her story parallels the documentary, while at the same time revealing the more quiet and introspective path she took in the midst of it all. everyone, this is Teddy Tannenbaum and another edition of Teddy Talk Podcast. Our theme is Meetings with Remarkable People, Lessons in Leadership and Life. And today my guest is Sheila Alex, a dear friend introduced to Denise, my wife and myself, by her long-term partner and sweet friend and colleague and profound artist, Bob Petrello, who we'll have on one of these podcasts one of these days. So Sheila and I share several uh, interests. We both have a, a deep spiritual path background, and we also have a, a lively attention to fitness and wellness. So I asked Sheila to join me uh, at this time because of the uh, current documentary that's out on Netflix called Wild Wild Country. I'll let Sheila tell that story uh, because she lived it. But I want to start a little bit before that. So first of all, welcome, Sheila. This is so cool. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you. This is fun. Okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so looking forward to this. So why don't we start with, uh, maybe you can give the audience a little sense of uh, kind of history of your background and what led you to pursue a spiritual path with such deep earnest. So basically, uh, I came from Orange County, California, and uh, before the Real Housewives of Orange County, it was still plastic land to me. It was everybody had swimming pools and Cadillacs, and it just felt so empty to me uh, living in a place that my father was very happy to have worked really hard to succeed at. Um, and I just looked around and, and I just felt like there's got to be more to life than all of that. So I got into meditation. Um, and plus, I was very introverted and uh, unhappy as a teenager, just yeah. looking around. Yeah. So if the world outside you doesn't interest you so much, the world inside might. Yeah. It, it became more, much more interesting when I really had to look at it. I love that. So uh, now I know you were involved with Osho, also known as Rajneesh. Uh, can you tell us what uh, initially attracted you to him in, in specific? Um, I was actually really searching for, I got into meditation um, and found that I just loved just going in and uh, and I was looking for a teacher of some sort and Krishnamurti was around, a few other people were around at the time, and uh, but I was not finding anyone that I really gelled with and then one day a friend of mine was a, a Indian classical musician, we sat down, He we always sat down and played Indian classical music, I would listen, he would play, or he would play a tape. And one day he played Osho. And as I was listening to it, it was a half an hour cassette. By the end of the cassette, you know, we were both in silence listening. And at the end of the cassette, it clicked off. And I just looked up at him and I said, where is this person? And he said, India. And I said, I'm going to India. 
And it was just like that. It was just totally instant. Yeah. There's something about uh, the old saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. Mm. Right? I had a similar experience in my own path uh, with a different teacher, but after studying and practicing and searching, and then when you hear that voice or that name or something, it just goes, yeah, this is right for me. Right. Love so. that. And, and uh, tell us, so did you go to India? Yeah, so it took me a while to save up my money, save my pennies, uh, being a waitress and whatnot. And then when I arrived in India, and um, looked at, uh, you know, I walked through these gigantic wooden gates, and there was a chandelier on the inside, which, you know, I mean, just didn't, it wasn't what my mind had conceived of. And then uh, the first time I sat down and watched Osho speaking in a big auditorium of like 7,000 people, I just laughed the whole time. There was just something funny to me and, and just right, you know, like uh, also when I first wore red and orange, uh, actually it was bright pinkish orange. Um, saffron. Saffron. And when I first did it, it was in the city of uh, Berkeley. That's where I was living at the time, you know, before. And I remember going into a store, putting on full head to toe saffron color and then walking out on the street and everybody who looked up just looked shocked. <laughs> and I remember going, oh, this is how it's going to be. Like, okay. <laughs> Theater right there on the streets of Brooklyn. Yeah, yeah. It's like everything uh, to do with taking sannyas. Uh, someone else said, bring up the thing about my name because I, I uh, did a mail order. I knew that I wanted to take sannyas, but I knew everyone got a new name. Right. And so I was never heard a sannyasin name. I never heard a Hindu name. And, and so I was thinking Ukamunga was like a name that occurred in my brain. Like, what kind of name am I going to get? So my sister was with me when the mail came in my place in Berkeley, and I open up the letter like, okay, you're going to have to call me this. This is my new name. And I open up the envelope, and I crack it open, and I look at it, and it was my same name, but it was Ma Anand in front of it. And my name had been Sheila, and the, change, uh, the spelling had changed. So it said Ma Anand Sheila, and again, I just laughed for like... <laughs> Half an hour. I was like, I can't believe, you know, that I was so ready to, for this new name. So it's just everything he did was sort of like counter what I expected. Right. So there was a tremendous amount of discovery, unexpected yeah. discovery there. Right. I yeah. love that. I and of course, too. the name Ma Nanshila is featured prominently, and a woman, not, obviously not you. Yes. Tell us about that. So ironic. Um, when I arrived in India, you know, there was this, uh, besides the wooden gates the big, and the chandelier and then a marble pathway and stuff like that and gardens all around, there was this big uh, building where that was where you went to meet the, um, the secretaries who had set up an appointment for you to take official sannyas. And, to, and anyway, and so I waited and turned and then I walked in there and the other Ma'ananshila that I didn't know what her name was, was sitting right in front of me. On her left was Lakshmi, and Arup was next to her. And um, so, and I show her my piece of paper, and she looks up at me. She looks at me. She looks over at Lakshmi, and she goes, um, she goes, "Hey, Lakshmi!" And Lakshmi turns and looks, and she goes, "Hey, this is my namesake." So Lakshmi and I look at each other, and we're both like, "Who is this weird person about <laughs> Sheila?" You know, we were just like, "Hey, you know, we're 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 cool, but she's really not," you know. And it was just one of those, everything about, you know, I was a very, very serious person. And everything about Osho and Sanyas was not serious right. for it, me. There's, there's a, a lightheartedness of being and everything you're saying, just the discovery and the laughter and the mirth almost. Of like, wow, this is, this is a joyful surprise is right. what this is. It was exactly what I needed, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, so... You're in India. Can you give us a sense of what uh, what year this was? Just so we can place uh, that in time. I think it was 77. I'm, I think so. 77, 78, 79, 80, 81. Yeah, it was 77, just before December. And, uh, yeah, and I, I immediately... I, I didn't actually immediately join into the commune. I was more watching and doing um, meditations, and I was doing... Uh, Osho prescribed some groups. Uh -huh. And I remember uh, the groups, you know, you've seen like that there was groups where people were naked and counter groups, very violent and robust. And there were also very simple groups like centering on the roof of one of the buildings where you would sit across from someone and you would be doing this whole thing where it was like, who am I? 
no, who are you? And then the person would answer, and then they, you'd say, who are you? And then you'd switch to another person, and like there'd be 50 people on the roof all saying, who are you? And after a while, you got really sick of saying who you were. <laughs> but yet, you just had to keep going. And then, and meditation was a relief after that kind of, a, you know, but it, and, and they had all these little practices where, uh, that were kind of uh, fun and light. So there was deep meditations, there was light meditations, there was deep groups where catharsis and, and combat wow. and encounter and like really guttural primordial stuff. You had to let it come up and go out. And then you had simple, you know, just walking meditation, zazen. Right. And they were all like powerful in their own way. But I really didn't want to do any of the encounter stuff. I was so not into it. And one day I just, uh, I was like, I wrote a letter to Osho saying, uh, you know, I, I, I heard you in the meditation saying, let happiness be your guide from, uh, un, how did he say it? He said, let happiness be the bridge from your unenlightenment to your enlightenment. And I was like, I'm going to do that. Thank you very much. I got it. Like, and so that's where I was at. And then he writes back, and you know, I get called into the office with a note from him going, okay, he got your message, and now we, he wants you to do this group, and then this group, and then this group. <laughs> Very prescriptive. And then, yeah, and he gave me like five groups, and I was just like, I went outside and I just cried. <laughs> I was just like, oh, oh, I thought I was there. Right. <laughs> no. No, not so much. That's the nature of having a living teacher, isn't it? Someone who actually can give you some guidance to have a perspective that you may not have. Totally. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so... There's that period, a lot of spiritual awakening happening in the U.S. and Western Europe, all the world at that time, a lot of spiritual teachers showing up. So you're attracted to, to Osho and you just show up there, you got your name, you get, you know, put in a group and you got, and, and, and you're meditating. Right. right. So there's a community there. How many people were in the community? At the time I went, you know, Osho had been teaching for a really long time. He'd been traveling around India. He'd been, uh, he'd traveled around India, most people don't know this, for like, 10 years right. or something like that on trains, you know, just to thousands of Indian people ever all over the place. Then he was in Bombay doing, uh, in his, an apartment, people would come to him and right. then they created this commune that I was part of. Um, and that had already been there for three years by the time I yeah. came along in 77. I, I'm, I might be a little off with yeah. the years. And, um, and there was about, I would say, 4,000 people around, wow. and by the time I, you know, it that ended, it was about 7,000 people that were around, living in different places, and coming there every day. Right. So that's quite a sizable community in this, and it was outside of a village? Um, it was, it was sort of like a, it's a funny, the commune was in a gigantic, kind of like man, English mansions, it was in an English suburb called Puna. Right. So they were big estates, and a lot of them were run down and abandoned, and so they bought them. Fixed them all yeah, up. Yeah, and then and then one of them was a medical center down the road. One of, two of them back-to-back -back was the main commune. It was only five acres. It was amazing what happened on that five, five acres. acres. Amazing, yeah. So And we would build on it. We, we built and built, just like um, on the ranch in a sense, we built extra accommodation and we had this gigantic uh, circular meditation hall um th there was arts and labor there were people doing crafting there was people doing all just so it was all books. sounds like a very self-contained community uh, right yes, did exactly. you grow food no in no that wasn't big enough to grow food on but they i think they did have a, a farms outside that right. sannyasins would go work right. and and create and bring right. in food yeah but in terms of your daily life, people were involved in a, ver a variety of different endeavors. So many. Right. Like, there were people making the malas, and it was a woodworking thing. That Not only malas, but all kinds of woodworking things. and uh, Beautiful pieces that I guess people would buy them, you know, because I didn't have much money at the time. But um, there was uh, theater groups that we, we had book bindings, and we had so many books, they made like jillions of books that went out to all different... We had people translating Something his, his, like, I his, don't know, 12 or 20 different languages. Right. So there was a lot. There was a, f a big photography lab. There was so many creative things. I can't even think of it all right now. But lots and lots of creativity yeah. going on. And Osho was uh, on the grounds? He was on the grounds. And he, and he would come every morning. It was called Discourse, yeah. like you know. Yeah. Um, and he would come out. Everybody would go into that big place where 7,000 people could sit. Right. Uh, big round, uh, bring their cushions and whatnot, drop their... It said, there was a sign that said, 
drop your shoes and your minds at the door. And then you'd walk up the steps, go into there, sit down, and um, and listen to discourse. While well, he he would drive his car like the I don't know, couple hundred feet that it right. would take to get there, and then he would open the they would open the door for him, and he would grand walk entrance. In. Grand entrance. There you go. And uh, and then when he would leave, same thing. He just walked out, you know. But he he was always namasteing everybody yes. on the way in and on the yeah. way out. Yeah. Um, and what was I saying? I lost track. <laughs> We're just interested in the... Uh, oh, yeah. Okay, so he would do discourse in the morning, and it was usually about an hour and a half. Right. And then in the evening, he would, um, in a different place, in the place where he was living, like right um, outside of the place where he was living, it was very lush and garden. The whole place was very lush, and it, we watered it a lot, I guess. Cause it, <laughs> it wasn't typical Pune, India, but it was lush in this area. And um, he had a garden, and he had a beautiful marble area where we would all come out. And then it was like 30 people a night would come and have uh, one-on-one satsang with uh-huh. him. And you could, come, and when you arrived, you always got an arrival satsang. And you would sit there and talk to him, and he would, um, you would, if you asked him questions, he would give sannyas to people who wanted sannyas. Right. So, and the satsang is is the discourse that one-to-one discourse. No, the. Discourse was in the morning. morning that was him just talking. The 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 term satsang for our audience is a, is the company of discourse. It's ah. people having that kind of interaction. Oh, okay. And yeah, speaking one of their on experience. One. Yeah. It was more one. And on then one. sannyas was was the uh, the. Oh right, sannyas was when you took uh, you decided to align yourself with him. Right. Um, you took sannyas, right. meaning that you said, yes, this is going to be my, my. Uh, some people would call him a master, someone would call him a guru, someone would call him a friend, I don't know what, what he was, you know. Uh, I, I it, did, remember, it didn't matter that much to you. N- no, when I went there, I remember thinking, oh, he's amazing, he's like so otherworldly, but the more you hung out and the more that you got to listen to him and know him and whatnot, you felt the contact of the specialness of the contact of the one-on-one, yeah. which then like led to having that contact here and there with others, I believe. But he became more and more normal. And I remember one time, after being there for about two years, um, he had a brother who was in the commune. And his brother looked quite like him, kind of bald and small and this and that. And I remember sitting out in front of the front office for having a break or something, and seeing his brother walking by, and I remember thinking it was Osho for a second, and I recognized that I didn't have any like, oh, you know, there was no, wow. It was more like, oh, there he is, you know, like a happy little feeling. Right. So I think being in his proximity, you had this this uh, thing where part of you acknowledged the amazingness of it, right. but part of it, he became more normal. Right, the mystification was, it was just quieted down. Yeah. The, you guys were there for about four years, I think you said. Yeah, right? I was there for four years. years right? Yeah. What was the relationship uh, with uh, with Osho and the general community? How was he perceived in India, in his homeland? Oh, you mean outside of? Yeah, outside us. of the ashram. Um, I think at that time, I, I guess there was the lovers and the haters. You know, like always. Um, I think there were people who thought he was. Uh, you know, they would, and they would call him Sir God because it's Sri Rajneesh. It's right. like Sir, Sir or Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. The formal name. Yeah. He would call himself the Blessed One, which was also Bhagwan. He'd say, it's because I feel like I am the Blessed One. But they would say, no, that means God. And you're calling yourself Sir God. So there was, there was um, everybody. I, I know that Indira Gandhi really liked him. I think he had, he, uh, I think he's met her in his earlier days yeah. on the road. Yeah. Um, yeah so. so, with the uh, with the group there and the daily activities, and uh, Osho's presence, uh, and his standing in the community, but you know you're always going to get the uh, up and down of that. Uh, and then something happened to cause, so I assume, for the group to migrate oh, right. to the U.S. Right. So what was what was your impression? How was that? And you you went with the group, and you went off to uh, to Oregon with the group. Right. What happened was there were always there was always a knowledge that it was too small. Too small. Yeah. It was too small, and we had more people and more people coming. So there was always this talk about even when I came, it was like the new commune, the new commune. We're going to move to the new commune, and so Lakshmi, who was his secretary at that time, this little five foot tall, little 
cute, wonderful woman. Um, she would go, and she was Indian, and she'd go wandering, going all over the place looking for the new commune. And we even bought a piece of land out that I checked out at one point that you know I worked at for a little bit. That was like an old castle. They called it the castle. You know, and that was in India. It was in India, yeah. and we were thinking of that was going to be the new commune, but it was uh, it, it didn't take. And um, so always there was this thing about the new commune. That's one end part of it. Right. And the other part is that his health was pretty bad, and he had chronic diabetes and a bad back and this and that. And I think from all of his traveling and whatnot in his earlier days. So better medical care. Yeah, I think that he needed some back. Yeah, I, I, but I don't really know how much is real and how much is not real, yeah. you know? I, yeah. I really don't know. Yeah, you know, one of the things I appreciate, and we've had this kind of conversation before around uh, being on the path, there's a lot of stuff that goes on around the actual experience of being on the path. Of course. Right? Yeah. And uh, you can get diverted by that as equally as you can get diverted being out in the in the world on a daily basis. So... The uh, if it doesn't interest you, it doesn't interest you, right? Uh-huh. Um, are you talking about his health or, or no? Or, no, just or, all the stuff around that. Well, oh, why this happened and oh, how that yeah, happened. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's like there's a lot of stuff that goes into uh, uh, things like right, that. Right, right. But right. that's you know that's not what you came for. Right, and and he did go into quote unquote into silence. Probably like a few months before he left, um, and he was, and he's put out the message that he was preparing us all to for him to be in silence and for us to not need to see him every day and be around him every day. That happened a few months before he left, but nobody knew he was going to leave. But you know how the energy in a place. We all felt you could feel something, something's, going on. something's going on. And the people who were keeping the secrets were really good. There was no leaking in the, you know, <laughs> it was like, but you could feel it. And then the day he was leaving, all of a sudden it was like, everyone run to the pathway because he never left the place, right. right? And all of a sudden he was leaving in a car and it was like, it was like, okay, there he goes. Where's what? he going? <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> I came here for this. He's yeah, leaving? Yeah. Wait yeah, a minute. Yeah. yeah. But, it, but, you know, I personally and I think many other people felt we were just going to go with what, you know, it was, it's like about letting go and letting life happen and being true to yourself. And if you don't want to be there, don't be there. If you want to be there, you just go in all in. I don't yeah. know. It's like that. So let's forward a little bit to the... Uh where the documentary talks about right. the migration, as it were, right. to this uh, area. And it was Eastern Oregon? Uh, yes. I believe, right. uh, high Desert is what they used to call oh, it, but right. I, I don't actually. And yeah. the, the name of the documentary is Wild, Wild Country, because right. people who lived there and knew the place knew it as really wild, untamed territory. Well, yeah, it was called the Big Muddy. The Big Muddy. Because right. when it rained, that's all you got. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, at the beginning, it was terrible. <laughs> so what was your awareness of... Uh, once the once the change was happening, how did you get you know swept into that to come back to uh, to right. the states? How, what was happening there? Well, I was part of demolition in Pune, so they were like taking things apart and taking things down, like right. so we weren't, weren't going to come back supposedly. So I was part of that, and then and then uh, I went back to California, and I was only a week in California when I got a phone call saying, "Oh, there's a place in the high desert, well, a little uh, Osho commune there." Uh, we want you to go there. And I, I knew that I had the freedom and the choice if I wanted to or not, but it felt like we really want you to go there. So I'm like, oh, okay, you know. And so I was just like, I'm just kind of getting my roots here, you know, back with my family. But so I went to the high desert, and that was where a lot of um, therapy sessions, again, were going on with uh, all kinds of people. So it was it was a moneymaker, and it was also a place where a, a bunch of the group leaders that, did, you know, were there. And um, I felt privilege to be there. It was kind of, it was fun. It was cool. It was in the middle of another desert. Yeah. (laughs) And then I was there for a couple months until I got called to go to the ranch. We kind of all knew we were kind of going to get called to go to the ranch when, when they had accommodation because they didn't have any. Right. So this was, this was untamed territory, the big muddy, and it was from scratch. It looked like from the documentary from scratch, this city was built. Yeah. They had a little farmhouse, uh, like one little farmhouse, I believe. And they had, uh, Maybe a little lake out there, you know. Um, yeah, they didn't have much. <laughs> yeah, it was quite. It, but they started bringing. Uh, somehow they were got donations, and they started pulling down this really big uh, uh, road that was a dirt road that went down right. there. They were putting, um, bringing trailers and stuff like that down there, and so we and 
you know, you just see all these trailers being lugged with the big equipment and the big trucks that were pulling them down, and then they'd situate them, and then that would be accommodation for 10 people, one right. trailer, you know. So. This is just happening piece by piece by yeah. piece. When you look at the footage of the documentary, I was really struck by how uh, extraordinary the level of uh, detail, planning, and pragmatism went into the building of this community, right? And the access and, and uh, the, you know, the housing and the food and the, yeah. you know. Yeah, I was impressed too. <laughs> you know, like I was, I, I think each of us, I, I really think that each of us was impressed with all the other people. And, and it, it just was like how there's so many smart people and people who were like suddenly like going, oh, we need a water system and let's do a filtration thing and we'll need a sewer system. And so let's do it this way, like the most environmentally smart way. We had all these Germans, they're great <laughs> at things, right? You know, like they're great at technology. And, and then we had a beautiful uh, Magdalena cafeteria that, you know, we situated and um, yeah, and then they had a farming thing. We had all these people who were really good at things. Oh, and everybody was smart and young and was willing to learn how to drive heavy equipment, right. how to drive, you know, how to create more roads, how to pave roads. And, and all these people who had looked like in Pune, same people, right? right. That had like long beards, long yeah, hair, right. red robes, <laughs> you know, nothing. just like in the breeze, right. everything's flowing in the breeze. And it, it, it was really one vibe. And now you come to the ranch, everybody's wearing cowboy hats because it's sunny, right? It's, and everybody's shaved and uh, they got short hair. And, they're and wearing, super industrious. And cowboy boots. And yeah, and, and everybody's like willing to like, okay, what's Whatever. needed? Yeah, what's Let's needed. do it. Right. Yeah. And the thing just grew like that. And and uh, am I correct to assume that Ma Nanshila, your namesake, yes. was in charge of all this? That she had actually found the property and, and uh, was right. part of it? Part of it was her vision. Yeah, you know, like there were a lot of, of different. There were a lot of different choices, and somehow she chose that. I heard that her brother might have been involved as a broker of the property. I don't know right. for a fact that that's the case. Um, and somehow that place was chosen. I think she did it. You know, her and maybe a handful of other people, but really she she called it. Um, I didn't think I, I heard Angela. I mean. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I heard that Osho didn't like it straight away. He you know he was like, what kind of place is this? Like, where are we? But uh, but it fit the bill for being a big property that right. was, uh, you know, someplace where we could create our own thing without right. other people around. Right. And and given the, you know, if you've got five acres and 7,000 people and it uh, feels like it's bursting, it seems there, you know, you're planning for a much bigger crowd. Right. Right. Definitely. And then there were all the festivals, the annual festivals that brought other people in. Right. Right. For those those weeks. Right. The festivals months. that we had, um, I think the first one had 15,000 people. Right. Yeah. And there was a lot of work needed to do for yeah. that. So in in your work, what, what your daily you know regimen there was uh, uh, on, on the, um, in the country there, was Osho also doing discourse in the morning? No, that zero. Changed. Remember when he went into when silence? silence. Um, I, I perceived that as he, he he really did put it out through the secretaries when he went into silence that it, it was a time now. It was time for us to, uh, you know, be fine without having his physical presence right. around all the time. Because a lot of people, you know, how they get they get dependent. Dependent. Yes. You know, on having someone around, and 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 I actually thought that made sense. And, and that carried on on the ranch. And that's why whenever he would drive out in his car, or one of his mini cars, when he would drive out, everybody came to the road to namaste him. Right. Because actually, sometimes you would get like this Shakti energy from him going by. Right. And other times, you wouldn't. And you would just be out there dancing and singing and go like, oh, there he is. <laughs> yeah. The, 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 uh, the relationship, clearly one of, you know, namaste when people put their hands together in acknowledgement, and and uh, there's that energy transference that happens when you have a relationship with a teacher like that, right. and it's, uh, it can be pretty profound, right? And it may not mean anything to anyone who's right. not experienced it themselves. They'd be watching it, and it looks like nothing particular is happening, but for each individual, their own experience. Yeah, but that's how love is, right? You know, love is is kind of mysterious. Hard to know what other people are feeling. And exactly. how, you know, like, unless you're like super tuned in and somehow you can pick it up. And sometimes we can easily. Right. But and so I think everybody there sort of picked up on the fact that 
everybody else was in connection with Osho and everybody else was in a loving space. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, So the documentary just was, I thought, extremely well done. Uh, The the footage, the fact that there was all that footage from 30 years ago, and then almost everybody who was interviewed then interviewed now. Right. Right? And everyone, you know, you don't know exactly what people are doing now, but to see the person 30 years ago and see them today, that was fantastic. And, And you could see that even though their lives were different, how a person does anything typically is how they do everything, uh, right? Yeah, yeah. So when I when I was watching, uh, listening to Ma Nanchila, there was a certain amount of stridency in her voice yeah. when she was, I don't know how old she was, maybe 30 or whatever. She was in her 30s. In her yeah. 30s, right? And then years later, there's it, it was older, softer, and still a stridency, almost a defiance, yeah, yeah, right? Definitely. Her, that, that it reminds me of um, in yoga, Tadasana, the mountain pose, we just anchored right there. Mm-hmm. That was the impression I got from her. It was a, really a force of nature. Yeah, and, she and was. So tell me, tell me a little about your experience working with her. Um, I knew her from Pune, right. where when she was in the office and I was working in the office, and she always liked to. She was just funny, but she loved to be the center of attention. Her husband was uh, at that time Chinmaya was dying of cancer, and one time we jokingly, she, it's so typical of her. She was saying something like, um, "We were talking about astro- astrological science." But nobody really believed in anything, but they said something. And she goes, Chinmaya has cancer, and he has cancer. He's cancer inside and out. You know, like she's so unfiltered always. Um, but I, I actually saw her when, um, you know, so I knew her really well. And I'd drive her around in Portland when I was being managing the hotel in Portland. Um, she, you know, like I, I uh, was hostessing in her house. Uh, during the last year of while she was there in her house, I hostess for a while. Then I would clean sometimes. I would um, do all kinds of things. You know, she, she, I knew her really well. And what I happened, I, I know I'm jumping ahead, but what happened that I perceived with her and the people that were the closest to her, that were her little soldiers or whatever, right. was that. They used to be all fun people. They used to be lighthearted. They used to be lovely people. I liked them all. And what was happening over the in the last year was they become more strident, more serious, more secretive, heavy. You know, it was like, what is going on? You know, and there even, was a change. Oh, noticed. so such a change. So secretive. So so intense yeah. and serious and it was yeah. blah you know it was like i was like what is going on here and i saw the dysfunction and they would say oh there's a sheila meeting and it was like oh no who wants to go i didn't want to go i didn't go to a lot of them i would find some excuse act like i was working somewhere else so i couldn't have didn't have to go but that is a sort of cowardice because what a lot of people who I know from that time, I would say we really should have spoke up. We, when we saw her getting so weird with the public, and she was so yeah. aggressive and so angry and, and what, defiant. Yeah, yeah. When she was getting those ways, all a lot of us would have spoken up, but we were afraid we'd be asked to leave. Yeah. And we felt so at home there, and we yeah. liked everybody there. We were just part of the thing. You know, it's it's a fascinating, provocative yeah. notion that there are a lot of people who work in organizations, corporations today who are bound by economic slavery. Right. You were not bound by economic slavery there. Mm-mm. But there was certainly the thing about not wanting to be asked to leave. Right. Because this was, a, this was the environment that was helping you <clears throat> to live your life expression, right? And your growth. I, uh, you know, in my own experience, you know, I, I spent about 14 plus years living in ashrams and spiritual communities. Right. And uh, I, I don't remember when I made the choice to do that, that I thought there was any kind of sunset or horizon on it. Mm-hmm. Right? Just that's what was at that time. Right. It just felt so natural and so right yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. So it, um, things got... Uh, uh, forever. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, she was just saying, when we were asked... The, we, I looked at the German guy, right. he looked back at me, and when she, she said, how long do you think you're going to live here? And we looked at each other, and we looked at her, and we just said, forever. 
Right. It was, I had a similar experience. You know, I was 14 plus years living in ashrams and spiritual communities. And I made that choice to do that at that time. I didn't ever think there was a sunset or a horizon on it. I just thought, oh, that's the choice I'm making now with no thought about what might happen. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, I totally get that. Okay. So, uh, yes, let's go down. <laughs> so, at that point in the documentary, one of the things that obviously became a prominent thing was uh, the relationship with the townspeople. So right. all these townspeople were interviewed from 30 years ago, and with one or two exceptions, almost everybody interviewed now, right. with all their own recollection of you know, what was happening, right. what, what was and what wasn't the truth, right. what was and what wasn't the reality, and each person's experience, and weave together formed this tapestry. The, the contention with the townspeople became palpable. Right. And, and, and I don't know, you know, the documentary is one person's or some group of people's point of view. I'm curious for your point of view on, on how, how aware were you of what was going on with the town and the, and the challenges back and forth with, with the groups? Um, I became aware towards the end, but early on, um, I was just part of crews that occasionally would go to, um, to Antelope. Uh, which then became the city of uh, Rajneesh or whatever. Rajneesh Puram. Uh, was so, our I, place. Right. So there, it was me. I don't know what they called that city. I forgot that was Antelope. But um, it was really, it was actually called a ghost town. I don't know if they, they didn't make people that aware of that. It was called a ghost town before we got there. I think there might have been 40 people living there, possibly. Right. Um, and the little tent, the little shop, there was one, yes, shop, the one shop, and that was closed. And so we turned that into a cute little shop of our liking. Um, there was a schoolhouse that they used very rarely, and we made it into a schoolhouse again for uh, the, sun, the kids of sannyasins right. that got driven up there and taken to school. And, um, and I never got to meet the people in the town because I would actually look over at a house or something and then the window, like, you know, the curtain would open up and then it would close. It was like whoever was there was very much just wanting to stay inside and not relate to us. Right. And we were a bunch of young people and they were a bunch of old people. And they were a bunch of old people that went there to retire. To retire and yes. they were also, you know, probably... Uh, you know, uh, uh, now that I've seen the videos of everything, you know, I didn't know at the time what I, one time though, I was cleaning in a house and painting and we were like renovating one of the houses, the many houses that they sold. And when I was in there, this old guy came to the front door and I put down my paint stuff and I go, hello. I go, I haven't met anyone from here. Nice to meet you to this old guy. He goes, no, 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 I don't live here anymore because I moved out ages ago. And I go, oh, that's sad. I thought you were one of the locals. I wanted to say hi because I haven't met any of you guys. And he goes, oh, they never liked anybody new, you know. And so that was my experience is that I was just like, well, I would have liked to meet people from there, but um, they were not social to no, us. No. And I understand now why. Yeah, they were pretty threatened, huh? I understand why. But but I didn't at, at the time I felt like I was pretty innocent. You know, right. I felt pretty like I'm just a normal, you know, I'm not I'm an American. <laughs> Wearing saffron. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wearing red. It's true. I yeah. get it now. I really didn't get how threatening we were looking. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it the documentary portrays it as some really kind of pretty intense stuff in this, you know, kind of battle and war between the townsfolks and extended beyond that uh, to uh, oh, right. county and regional and yeah, political yeah, and, and, yeah, and yeah. statewide elections and right. and uh, people felt really threatened about that right and then there was some funky stuff with health and uh, oh the poisoning the poisoning I know what did you guys who th- those of you who were living there the yeah. thousand living there yeah. that may not have been involved directly in that right. as you became aware of that what was the buzz around the community there was not a as you became aware the i mean what happened was i mean like i had told you before i was just outside the inner circle of sheila's inner circle right. and and the people i could name them all i knew them all they knew me um 
you know, we were like the people that were doing all the logistical things for the for the whole place. And, uh, you know, like even cleaning supplies and food delivery and all that kind of stuff. And when I heard about her, that she took us, I was in the Portland Hotel, managing the Portland Hotel, the, the day that I heard she had taken off. And then someone goes, you know, we, I heard that there's, there was, Sheila was poisoning somebody and she's taken off with this little crew of people and they're stealing money and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, are you crazy? What are you talking about? I thought, you're a nut. You know, to the guy who sat down next to me, I thought, what a, what a nut you are. This is silly, whatever you're telling me. Sheila leaves all the time. There's no big deal. But it was all, and then I got aware of more and more things that were all true. And I was just as surprised as, I mean, and then I heard there was like, I had been to her house a million times. I didn't know there was like a tunnel going down to a road for a quick exit or something. Like that must have, that must have happened at night by a small crew. And I, uh, I knew none of it. I was, and then when I heard she had someone poison the doctor, you know, Osho's doctor and bug his house and all of those things. And then poisoning people in the Dalles, it was like, I was horrified and shocked and like, uh, it was very hard to believe. Yeah. And I go back to that early comment. That's not what you came there for. Oh, right? totally. So, so you didn't have, your antenna were not up to be part of any of that. Oh, you're right. Right? Yeah. You were, having, you, you were in a support staff role. The, what you were asked to do didn't really matter to you. It was right. the experience of being a community and your right. own path right. that was you know, most critical. That's all very true. Yeah. It's fascinating. Uh, you mentioned that hotel in Portland. Right. That hotel was bombed. Yeah, and uh, I was managing the hotel. I was one of about four people who were on a rotation. I would go there for two months at a time and be there. Well, it was supposed to be one month, but it was always ended up being two. <laughs> right. That I was uh, like the manager of the hotel, and we had a crew of cars that uh, people would pick up people from the airport that were coming in, and then a bus that drove down to the ranch. Like We had a real big system going on. And um, and I was just managing it when uh, we had the bomb went off on the top floor, and um, I hadn't checked in the guy who had checked in, um, and 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 then like the police came and they got the guy and apparently he had blown up some of his fingers and stuff and he came down and then some people from the ranch who were a little higher up than me. Um, they uh, were happened to be in town and they came in to the hotel and they go, okay, Sheila, we need you to go up there with a crew of people and clean up the room. And I'm looking at them going, no, 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 that's not happening. And so, uh, and, and there, and some of my, the girls who cleaned the staff, they were really close buddies and they're going, we'll go with you. We'll go up there and clean. And I'm going, nobody's going up there to clean that room. I'm thinking that's a crime scene blood are you kidding me i was totally uh, you know and i am pretty much a yes sayer i was a big yes sayer at the time but i was like no that is not happening so anyway <laughs> they they got it they and, and it didn't happen and guess what we're all getting everybody from the hotel into the lobby everybody's hanging out in the lobby because we don't know what to do next but we're waiting and the bomb squad is arrives they're all walking in the front doors wow. there's two front doors they're walking in and then all of a sudden, another explosion goes off, and they go, where was that? Where did it come from? And we didn't know. You know, like, we're, like, aiming at, like, what what angle is, did they, you know? And so, the, and... This is real time. That, yeah, that was all happening. And uh, and then we all had to get up and get out of the hotel because the second bomb had gone off, and, you know. Um, yeah, and so we all just took a long walk to, and then we found a hotel to stay at and everything. And then when the house, the whole thing was burning, and I remember looking at it from a place across the street, uh, a corner that we all ended up looking at it, and it's all like the whole fourth floor is going up in flames. You know, you see them coming out of the out of the windows, and I'm thinking, oh, I'll never have, have to manage to that right. hotel again. It's a new service opportunity <laughs> yeah. for you. Woo. But you know what? They fixed it. Oh. And we had to. I know, I know, it's really funny, it's, but, um, wow. yeah, but to tell you about how sannyasins operate, some of the sannyasins who had a musical instruments, they had, and we're all going out and they're grabbed their, and they're making music while we're walking away from the ho- right. the hotel that's burning. That's like typical sannyasin right. style. Right. Yeah. On another level altogether. Yeah. It's right. just like, okay, right. is this what's happening? All right. Okay. Let's go. Yeah. Yeah. Just noticing. <laughs> 
I want to uh, shift a little bit. I want to talk to you. One of the things the documentary struck me was this uh, uh, attraction, appeal, and almost like a roundup of homeless people oh, around the country gosh. Yeah, yeah, to yeah. bring to the ranch. Right. And I know that the way the documentary talked about it, there was this political undertone. We get them to register to vote and we can you know, win elections. But I was curious from your perspective, if you had any interaction there, uh, both on the humanitarian aspect and the spiritual aspect, what your sense of those people's experience was. Ooh, my sense of their experience. Uh, you know, I saw them coming in. I know they had to get like de-liced. Um, we had dental services. We had medical services and stuff like that um, that they were fully had full access to. But you know what? I, I talked to a bunch of these guys, and a lot of them were like, uh, after a, at first they kind of liked it because it was a novel, it was interesting. But then after a short time, most of them were like, you know, I have a good thing where I live. I've got I get my check every month. I don't spend it on rent anywhere. And I have a, my favorite bar where I can watch TV. There's no TV going on. We, they had no TV. They had no, like, they got right. their beer, but they didn't have bars, you know, to go to. They didn't have their pool tables. They didn't have uh, the kind of life they really were used to and kind of enjoyed more. Um, there was a few people who liked it there, but I think it was boring for them. Like, what to us was, like, beautiful, and we loved it, and we right. everyone wanted to be there. And to them, it was like, nah, this well, is not our, you know, it, it wasn't most of their cup of tea. Yeah. And it, it was so strange to those of us who were there to see all these people getting shipped in. We're, we were completely flummoxed. Why is this happening? Right. But again, it, the thing was, go with it. You right. know, it was like, okay, if this is what OSHA wants, I didn't think, I don't think anyone thought if this is what Nobody Sheila wants. wants. Right. But if this is what OSHA wants, okay, yeah. I guess we're supposed to do this. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so most of them did not. Um, they didn't last. It wasn't their place. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think drew so many people to OSHA? Um, well, you know, I actually, uh, I, I listened to a lot of people's stories before. I've heard a lot of them tell their stories. And people came from, uh, what I really think is that people, when they were successful, when they had everything. Or like me, being a person from Orange County where everybody in my little neighborhood, my father arrived at a certain level of success where the whole neighborhood, you know, every other house had a swimming pool and everybody had Cadillacs. You had enough of everything that you needed. And when you, nothing fails like success. Osho used to say that. And so when you, and, and people would often say, why aren't there very many minorities? Why aren't there many black people right. or Latino people or whatever? And he'd say, because they, you know, the, you need to be fairly wealthy before you realize that wealth doesn't get you what you want. So he would say nothing feels like yeah. success. It's, it's so counter to the Western mentality. Right, right. right. But uh, you mentioned your, your father. I think you had told me once that your father came and visited you there. Yeah, right. Well, that was, that's a good story. Why don't oh, you share that? I forgot which one I told you. But when he came, he actually had his own airplane, a Bonanza. And he flew his airplane with his girlfriend, and they landed there. And at first, he, and he got a rental car, and he was just driving around, and he was, he was going there's a lot of money that's gone into this place. Wow, this place is great. And he would talk to all the people and he loved, you know, all these foreigners. <laughs> it, it, there it were a lot a, of foreigners. Right, it was a global community. <laughs> it was a global community. I mean, it, was, it had a lot of people from Europe and um, Israel and all kinds of places. Um, and South America. We did have a certain mm -hmm. amount. And, and uh, he just thought it was so fun. And, and then we had like a naked lake. I don't know, what, a nudist lake. Right. And uh, I felt kind of embarrassed in the first five minutes of taking off my clothes. But his wife, his girlfriend did it too, and he did, and we're all like, whatever. And then he was like looking around at all these. He, there was a there was this one little German girl who was a friend of mine who was in the the snack bar, and he kept going. And what else do you want, Sheila? You want something else? Because he'd go, Oh, she's so cute. <laughs> I know, and it was just it was odd. It was odd. But, but um, it fits the, the for the, an outsider, so to speak, it fits their perfect idea uh, of what must be going on behind right. those walls or outside of that. Right. But yeah. very few people actually were enjoying all the lakes and whatnot because we were working too, busy too hard. Working. Yeah. yeah. No, you could see from the footage. Yeah. Uh, when they when they when they had footage from the from the air, the the immense amount of, of uh, work that went into building this place, 
and how the how the land was cared for and and right. it just was very pragmatic. But to to finish with that too is the second time my father came, he landed and they took a like that was after the bombing of the hotel right. and they took a a, a dog a sniffing for guns or um, bombs or something onto his plane and he said those people don't know what they're doing because he, he had to like show them the places where they could look you know because right. they didn't know all the little ins and outs of the places on the plane and he was like what's going on why is this happening and then they didn't let him rent a car he had to like have some other kind of accommodation uh, transportation and then it, he just felt the whole paranoia he didn't stay the whole time he was going to stay right. the second time because and he said something's going on something's wrong and I was like it's true there is something right. going on but I didn't know what I just saw the paranoia yeah but between his first and second visit he could tell there was a change totally something. the first so, time he loved it the second time yeah. he was I'm out of here yeah the the saga of the whole thing and how it all you know, um, kind of fell apart. Uh, listening to, uh, I think the attorney's name was Niren. Niren. Niren, yeah. yeah. Uh, very eloquent about yeah. about uh, both 30 years ago and, right. and, and currently. Right. And clearly had a profound experience, you right. know, brought, brought the pragmatism of the law to bear, but also was having a real personal, spiritual oh, renewal totally. there. Absolutely, yeah. The documentary shows... Currently, it was like a surprise at the end. There's Ma Nanshila at this age, and they describe, and she's a social worker, right? In, in, I don't know, she served time in prison with one of her associates over all that stuff. And yeah, yeah, get yeah. Out, and, you know, it's like defiant as ever. Yeah. And now she's doing social no, work. No, 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 no. Not so no. much. See, here's where I don't mean to be mean. I love Sheila, actually, on a certain heart-to-heart -heart level, you know, but... I have to tell the truth. She is not a social worker type of person. And she, this is what I know about her that not many people know. She married a, she married first Chinmayananda or Chinmaya uh, on, you know, before she went to India. She got married to Jayananda, uh, this nice American banker guy who she really, you could tell she really had something with. And towards the end of the ranch, somehow I heard she was marrying this guy. What was his name? Deepi or some funny little name. And he was a Swiss guy. He was a big lumbering Swiss guy who uh, who she had no chemistry with at all. You know, like nothing. I, I was in the house when he would come there sometimes and there was nothing. And I'm like, why is she marrying a Swiss guy? And it turns out a lot of money that was coming pooling into Germany and other places was going through banks in Switzerland before they came to the ranch in her name. And she... Switzerland is one of the only places you can't get extradited from in Europe. Now, I don't know if it's maybe a coincidence that she was married to a Swiss, Swiss guy, guy and living in Switzerland where all the rich banks are, where all the money was going through and that a lot of money was seemed to be shorted out of the, you know, I, I can't, I, I, to me it seems kind of likely that she bought up maybe some nursing homes and then managed them as some way to Launder money could be, you know, this is my, it's my hypothesis. Right. And I don't know, but I do not believe that she was. I think she's she, really good at acting, but I don't think she's a, right. she, she never was that kind of person. Because right. so, the impression you get is that she is a hands-on, people-to-people yeah. social worker. Nah. But um, not so much. I don't think so. So... And I'm, and if she ever hears this, I'm sorry, Sheila. But come on, <laughs> she knows as well as you guys I go do. back. Yeah, she knows as well as yeah. I do. There is a uh, there's a theater aspect to this whole thing. Yeah, right? I'd Almost, say. Right? yeah, yeah. And and then it dissolved. Right. Right. Uh, a lot of drama all around it. The footage they show afterwards of like now it's in in a sense disrepair. Now it's the takedowns happened. This whole this whole thing was created, maybe with the intention forever, and now it's being taken down like a stage set, uh -huh. right? And what happened to everybody? Yeah, everybody went everywhere. Um, the, most of the people that I knew, uh, we I, I was kind of surprised and just noticed that everybody went to beautiful place. Either they went back to their home of origin, or they would go to 
beautiful places like Laguna. I went to Laguna Beach. There was 500 sannyasins in Laguna, <laughs> Laguna Beach. Beach. <laughs> we, all, we all rented these houses and lived like 10 people in a house, like in a big house with jacuzzi and whatnot. You know, like, and we, we had to work our butts off and we had to make money, but we pooled together and we had fun and we had parties every weekend. I mean, it was so nice. You know, like, and it was like, you only worked five days a week, eight hours a day. It was day. a break. You were like, oh my God, I'm in heaven. It was so great. It's the post-hippie coming and, ashram, yeah. you know, integration. And people went everywhere. People moved to all these, like Marin County was a big place. A place, Ibiza, Spain, you know, some place. People went to beautiful places. They tended to go to beautiful right. places or to their place of origin, which could have been very nice, yeah. whatever. And then people... Uh, oh, and, and get had, married and have babies and families. families. Yeah. Shockingly, <laughs> we had a zero birth rate right. um, for the whole eight years. When yeah, zero birth That's rate. Right. You know, nobody had kids. I mean, if people brought, brought kids, kids, yes, but people, if they were really going to have a kid, they were kind of probably asked to leave. Right. Because it was like no. Osho used to say this one thing, and I took it to heart. I think it's really true. He'd say, "Why you don't need to have children. Look how many children there are. He goes, look at I have so many people around me, ready-made children. You know? <laughs> and then he would say, can you give birth to yourself? This is what you're here for. Give birth to yourself. Like, And, and I really feel like that's true, that there's so much... Uh, uh, and I love other people's children. I have nieces and nephews right. that I adore you know and but but it's uh, I just feel like you know overpopulating repopulating it's not, we got a lot of people here to take care of already yeah. <laughs> that's my opinion so that period ends people take their experience go back into the world as it were right and carry it forward yeah and it was an adventure yeah oh and here's an interesting thing one time, when we were at the naked, the nudist lake, actually, my father was talking to a guy next to him, and he he was a um, a lawyer. Uh, he said, "What did you do in you know the guy's German? He was a friend of mine, and he said, "What did you do in the world?" And the guy goes, "I was a lawyer." And he goes, "A lawyer? And what do you do now here at the ranch?" And he goes, "Oh, I work on a pipe crew. You know, <laughs> we're digging a trench right now. Right. We're doing." Right. He goes, "I I love it. Simple so service. fun. So fun." And so my dad goes, you went for me to lawyer to working in a pipe crew? He goes, he goes, that, well, that must be unusual. And the guy goes, oh, no, there's two other lawyers in my crew. <laughs> you know, it's like, and then those lawyers, when they had to, while the whole end of the, uh, the ranch thing was happening, there was all this litigation right. and all this warfare. They had to pull off the of, pipe crew to do litigation did, work. and everybody was so upset that they had to go back to being a lawyer and the people who were doctors for the movement yeah and the people who were doctors and lawyers and you know uh engineers and stuff engineers actually they got a lot of play on the ranch yeah. so they got their right. they got to keep on doing that but people who were very highly skilled and overtrained and overeducated they liked being out on a farm working on the farm i my friends who they were overqualified they loved being outside and working you know even not so much working in the laundry crew or the cleaning crew but you know it wasn't bad because it was but then they had to go back to doing the thing that they were trained for because that's where the money was right. yeah so we're going to wrap this puppy yes up. I just something for you to share just a you know of all the lessons that you learned uh from and through our show just something that captures your imagination that you'd share with us Ooh. as we wind this up oh my goodness that's a to wrap it up in something um you know celebrating everything he always said celebrate everything and in my life since that time, there have been a few hardcore things that have happened around me and that have happened politically yeah. and that have happened uh, that, you know, like it's easy to celebrate the good stuff. But when the tough and hard things happen, um, maybe in that moment, it's really hard to celebrate. But to and he used to also say acceptance is transcendence. And so I really get it when you really can accept what happens. You are like, it's like flushing that thing through. It's not, you don't get stuck fighting the, the negative. And then the celebration part is like, okay, what can I go forward? Like, how can I live my life fully and 
forward and make the best out of it. So I think that's my message that I got from Osho. Yeah. Well, I certainly celebrate you. Uh-huh. Thanks for doing this, for sitting down and having this conversation. My pleasure. How cool. My All right. pleasure. Okay. Namaste. Thank you.